For the past year, one of the most celebrated Australian ballet artists has been acting artistic director of the Royal New Zealand Ballet. In this, its 70th year, David McAllister joined the Australian Ballet in 1983 and went on to become principal dancer and the longest-serving artistic director by the time he stepped down in 2020 to go freelance. He became a companion of the Order of Australia in 2021. In his book, Soar, A Life Freed by Dance, McAllister described his own career and his personal life. Now in Ballet Confidential, he argues that ballet is too often denigrated for being elitist, irrelevant or boring. So obviously I asked him, who invented the tutu? Well, I think it was an evolution rather than an invention. It sort of started at the car, well, started at the floor and then sort of slowly worked up. And I think his ballet technique developed, the tutu emerged from shorter and shorter skirts. It's an old thing, though, isn't it? It I mean, is. We take the tutu for granted. <laughs> we do. In all sorts of um, situations. And yet, you know, you think, what a strange thing. I know. Why can't women wear tights like the blokes and have done with Well, it? I guess they do in a lot of the contemporary works. But, yeah. um, I mean, the, the costume for the women is sort of really evolved from, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, Marie Camargo, when she you know, took the heels off her shoes and then lifted her skirts to show her footwork was the beginning of the evolution of the tutu, really. And and as technique has developed and as, you know, the dancers... Um, I guess ballet's fairly binary, you know. It is very male and female and there's a lot of traits that separate the two genders. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I think it's really only been probably in the late 20th century that, you know, we've become a little bit more neutral where, you know, men and women both wear unitards and in most of the contemporary mm. works. And I suppose that's part of the thing that makes people think ballet is so old-fashioned, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it is so binary. Yeah, it is. But I look, quite honestly, I think there is a reformation going on in ballet at the moment. And I think those... Well, when we see men on point... We'll know that the rev- revolutions come. <laughs> well, the I mean, there are ballets where men dance on point. Are there? Yeah, but you've you know, done point. Haven't I you? did. And you I, were an ugly sister in I Cinderella. Was, I was an extremely ugly ah. sister. <laughs> but um, but it's usually done for an effect, like you know, either to parody, not parody women, but like you know, to be seen to be you know a, a female character, or like in Midsummer Night's Dreams, uh, Frederick Ashton's production, where Bottom the donkey dances on point. Um, in you know to sort of and actually in also in another of his ballets um, in Beatrix Potter all of the pigs dance on point both the men and the women right so, and it's you know to give that look of you the know trotters. pigs trotters yeah exactly so who invented the point well I think Marie Taglioni was the one that sort of got the the gong for being you know the first ballerina to dance on point and it came from her father actually who was her ballet master and apparently a little bit of a um, you know nasty piece of work and she a lot of a lot of those types in ballet yeah yeah, we'll come to that especially ballet masters no um but he i mean she wasn't particularly beautiful apparently you know um she had very long arms and very big feet which i mean these days we'd think that's great but in those days would you well i mean pretty feet like you know feet that pointed 
there's a, you know the terminology of ballet with pretty feet but um <laughs> but she he sort of trained her to be incredibly strong so she could actually rise up all the way through her toes onto the tips of her toes and it had been i think in in italian carnival it had been a practice you know they people would do it for effect um to be able and and i guess also you know when you look at the siberian cossacks i mean they dance on their knuckles as well it was sort of a way of doing something that was out of the ordinary mm. um and so i think filippo talioni her father sort of said oh if you do that that will make you look like you're so light on your feet that right. you're just hovering off the floor yeah. and that then turned into a whole technique yeah you talk in your book about how it was Pavlova, I think, that um, gave people the idea that the female ballet dancer mm. should be ethereal yeah. and frail. Yeah. And what do they call her? The broom. The broom. <laughs> I know. Such an attractive nickname. Um, one of the first ballerinas to have that kind of fragile look going on, mm. which, of course, took off. Mm. Now, that's got to be, you know, the patriarchy, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, for Pavlova, I think it was her genetics. That was just the way she was. Um, and I think because at that time, a lot of the other ballerinas... But the way she was, she was loved for the way she was. And everybody thought, oh, you know, she's the epitome of womanhood. Oh, oh yeah. And it was Petipa, you know, who was the ballet master mm. of the, um, the Imperial Ballet. And I think because she was so different... And she was a great artist. I mean, you know, her artistry was the thing that people fell in love with. And the look was so different that they sort of went, oh, you know, it's sometimes standing out for being different is a good thing. Um, and then, look, I think, though, it was really um, George Balanchine that brought in the, the emaciated look of dancers in the sort of early to late 20th century. And that's the sort of the, the genesis of that aesthetic. Yeah, you said that he trimmed everything down, made everything very sleek, mm. wanted everybody to look sleek. Mm. Did he really think that women should look the same from the back as from the front? It's a quote. I don't know if it's what he actually thought, but he was quoted as saying it, so I'm assuming he did. Um, and I've got to say the generation that he sort of nurtured through his time were very obsessed about that sort of thinness you know it was it was sort of seen as a as a badge of honor you know to be able to have you know bones on view you know <laughs> which i mean you know and i grew i joined the ballet world and you know professionally in 1983 and it was very much the fashion like that was for what, women and men like we all had to look like you know greyhounds but, but did you? Yeah, yeah. Men were supposed to look emaciated as well. Well, men were supposed to look muscular but no fat. <laughs> and the women were supposed to look thin with no fat. Right. Yeah. And consequently were terribly injured at times Absolutely. because they had no but resilience. Bone, bone density. I mean, you know, and, you know, we had women who were not, um, you know, having a menstrual cycle, which then affected the density of their bones. And, you know, stress fractures in the 80s and 90s were a huge scourge on mm. ballet. So, you know, it's, a, it's and it wasn't really put together until I think sports science stepped in and went, hang on a minute, this is unsustainable. Do you think that that was part of ballet's charm, seeing people you know, starving Close and bleeding and in pain <laughs> yeah. for their art? Um, no. Are you sure? I, well, maybe for a, a small group of, you know, ballet, ballet domains, that was something that they sort of thought. I think it was a, it was a image that was seen as otherworldly, you know, this sort of, and 
I mean, I guess at the time society was going through the same thing. I mean, you know, anorexia is, you know, still quite rife in, and, you know, fashion was going through that same sort of thing where, you know, heroin chic was the look and everyone was trying to be like, you know, well, even before that, Bianca Jagger, who was, you know, she would wear those plunging necklines with lots of bones here and that was seen as beauty, you know. Um, I think it, it, it one fed into the other and, and it became sort of like a, a spiral <laughs> That, that we all went down together. And I think, you know, it's only really, I'd say, in the last 30 years that that's changed mm. in, internationally, you know, with, with people coming to the realisation that health is, is where we should be heading, not, you know, this unattainable ideal of thinness. Josie Kirkland, of course, epitomises what everybody thinks of <laughs> what yes. a female ballet dancer had to go through, you know, the drugs mm. and the yeah, yeah. starvation. I mean, I think that. she took it to a very extreme level i mean i was dancing at that time and i mean we weren't did you ever meet her i did i actually worked with her she coached us a couple of times Mm. after she'd stopped dancing Mm. and actually i did class with her when she was a dancer and she was an extraordinary artist but she was a very damaged person i think i think she would say that about herself um and you know she's gone through an incredible journey to become you know a much healthier person that she is now the kind of extremities the kind of um demands that the ballet put on dancers back in those days though would would either um invite damaged people or damage them yeah no 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 absolutely and you know i think that's why i don't want to make it sound as if all ballet dancers are (laughs) damaged (laughs) well maybe they were i don't know i think there was a generation that you know that went through that and i think you know a lot of the things that have become the tropes of ballet, you know, that sort of suffering for your art, you know, yeah. s- starving yourself, all yeah. of that sort of stuff, I, it comes from a place of reality. That's what happened. But I do think, you know, it's not necessarily where we are today. In fact, it's definitely not where we are today. And I think, you know, that sort of um, behaviour is not seen as the where we want to be into the future either. Mm. Although whether you can detach that and leave ballet as an audience-pleasing art form mm. is is yet to be decided, is it not? I think ballet's always been an audience-pleasing art form. I think it's gone... You know, I think there is... Yeah, this... but, OK, so does the audience... Will the audience be pleased... With by healthy dancers, yeah, <laughs> I think you so. know, yeah. heavy ballerinas. Look, I think I think it was fetishized a little. Sure, can't say that word, but I think it it was like that in the you know seventies, eighties, and nineties. I think it was it did become a fetish, and I don't think that that's necessarily what people. I mean, it's it's one of the things that detracts. I mean, you're crediting. I don't have that high opinion of human nature, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I think. You know, you just need to go on what was formerly known as Twitter to realise that <laughs> people are really, really mean, mean yeah, and yeah, nasty. Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm a bit Pollyanna when it comes to, you know, people and what they think about ballet. But, you know, to me, the art form of ballet is much more than just the way the dancers look and how they, you know, what they do. It is actually an opportunity to, you know, tell stories through physicality and, and you know... 
to transform an audience, you know, through an art form that doesn't speak. You know, it's I find it quite fascinating that, you know, you can come along. And people have said this, you know, I've had lots of conversations with people. And one of the things I love about ballet is it takes them out of their ordinary lives. You know, it takes them into this fantasy world that is quite different and, and unusual. And, yeah. But I mean, do they want to see people like themselves in this fantasy world or do they want to see ethereal ballerinas yeah and look i think there is an aesthetic to ballet that does yeah you know it you know it's a pyramid you know lots of people start learning dance it is artificial obviously yeah yeah it is idealized and there is that aesthetic but i don't think that people necessarily want to see the suffering i actually think they want to see the joy and that's where i think we are heading with ballet i mean you know just the nature of the technique you have to have a certain facility to have external rotation from the hips you have to have you know the feet that can go for women the feet that can actually go up onto the point because some people just don't have that flexibility in their ankles Um, and for the men you know you have to have a physique that enables you to you know build the strength to be able to you know partner the women in the way that you need to I mean there is there is various things that ballet will always have that does exclude some people from the experience mm. at that very high level of professional, you know, sort of performance. But, you know, it doesn't exclude people from going along to a ballet class and having fun and, you know, and learning to inhabit their body in a different way. Mm. I was just thinking about Balanchine and the most recent production of the Royal New Zealand Ballet mm. included a Balanchine piece, yeah, right? Serenade, Serenade yeah. Um, and I didn't see it, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if you had to amend it. I mean, presumably when he first staged it in the 1930s, it was full of extremely thin women. Well, funnily enough, actually, it didn't. That, that sort of aesthetic hadn't really hit right. until much later. So, I, you know, I think they were healthy American girls, you know, <laughs> that, that he created it on. Um, but, you know, the thing is that there's beauty in all shapes. I don't see beauty as being one... one there may be beauty in all shapes, but the, but do I want to see them on stage dancing? I mean, that's, yeah, you know, yeah. that's no, the no, brutal look, truth. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Um, I think the more contemporary works of, you know, both ballet and contemporary dance shows a lot of different, you know, shapes, body shapes and sizes. And I think the choreography is tailored to, you know, um, to enhance their, mm. their physicality. So what do you do if you're staging a Balanchine piece that was was made for mm. very thin women? Do you do you look for very thin women to recreate what <laughs> what is obviously a heritage piece, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I, do you update it? I think you look for the people with the talent to be able to dance it. And I don't think that's... So to hell with George's prejudices. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've moved on from from that. And, you know, I I think to be a dancer anyway, you have to be strong and fit. I mean, this idea of not having any muscles is ridiculous because, you know, it takes a huge amount of strength to do do what you have to do on stage. So I like to see dancers that are really healthy and strong. But, of course, another reason for very thin women, sorry to bang on about this, (laughs) is because the blokes had to lift them. They had to lift them, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're not going to want to lift, you know, your average woman, are they? 
Yeah, and and look, that's probably why they'll hurt you know, themselves. It's probably why the female dancers are a little smaller than sure. the average person. Um, but you know, but equally, the women do half the work when you're doing the lifting. I mean, they're not just passive in that <laughs> arrangement. They're they're whole, working very hard to keep themselves up there as well. Right. So you know, so once again, that strength is important. And often, like I've danced with, you know, very light people and you know people that are slightly heavier. And sometimes the heavier people are easier to partner because they really hold themselves and and you can feel the weight and you can push against it whereas sometimes with very light people it's hard to feel where they are mm. in space so you know it's not necessarily that you have to be waif like but you know in, in all things in ballet you know if you have tall women and short men you need short girls to dance with the short men and tall men to dance with the taller women you know right. it's all about balance and 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 that's part of what I think the modern look of a ballet company is. You talk about it in your book, Ballet Confidential, The Ballet Paradox. Mm. The intoxicating pursuit of a perfection that is unattainable. <laughs> yes. Which invites the sort of people who might have wanted to starve themselves or yeah. you know, drink too much coffee and the cause of <laughs> losing a couple of kilos for tomorrow night's book. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. The people who are driven. Yeah. And excessive. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's ever going to change. No, because, I mean, I think I think of that quote as more about the fact that what keeps you going back into the ballet class, what keeps you sort of striving for that, that, you know, perfect position of the foot or the arm or the leg or the pirouette or the jump. And it is because no matter how good you... I mean, Sylvie Giem, who was, I think, one of the great ballerinas of our generation would come into class every day and work as if she needed to work harder, you know, to find that elusiveness. Yeah, but did she ever find it? Well, I mean, many would say yes, but I'm probably... But did she? I don't know. I think she always found that it was a, um, it was a pursuit. You know, if you're constantly pursuing and you never get there... Yeah, but that's, that's well, sort of like... I don't know, maybe it's... Did just, you get there when no, you were a dancer? I mean, you know, maybe in one or two shows, but... Um, did you come off a show and think, oh... It's never going to be better than that. That's it. Um, no, because you always thought, well, you know, there's something. I could have done be that better. better. Yeah, right. but 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 there were certain shows that you would lose yourself in the performance, and actually, they they were the performances that I felt were the ones that I couldn't have done any better because you come off stage and you go, I can't actually remember what I did. In which case, you were so in the moment that it was just. Whereas most times you come off stage going, oh, that pirouette was a bit, you know, dodgy and I could have partnered that better. And, you know, you, you sort of give yourself your, you know, your your um, list of things to get yeah, better yeah. for next time. Whereas some shows... Isn't that scary if you come off and you think you can't remember what you did? Because, it was beautiful. It yeah. was so amazing. And and then you have to rely on the reaction from the audience and also your, you know, coaches. So is it some masters. kind of muscle memory that takes over? Yeah, it's sort of... It was one of those, you know, there, there was a few. One of them was actually the evening with um, when I danced for Princess of Wales in London. And we were all so heightened because was she was that? there. was that? 1992. Yeah. Yeah, just around the time that she and um, Prince Charles were sort of separating. But um, it was just such an amazing night. And I remember feeling that sense of, like, I feel like I could do anything. And it was a mindset as much as anything else. Mm. Um but it was, I remember coming off at the end of the night and going like, well, I think it was okay, but I just was so lost in it, I couldn't remember really what happened. And it was, that was, that was a great feeling. Mm. You've talked about um, the artistic director that made you the principal dancer, mm. uh, Maina Gilgood, mm. and 
she was a tricky character. I mean, yeah. you wrote about her in Soar. <laughs> yes. And she, you know, had some kind of ride of reply that went on for <laughs> pages and pages. Um, uh, she was worried about your nose. I know. Suggested yeah. that you have something done with it, really? Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, it was actually the first thing she ever said to me, which was sort of funny. But um, So I mean, people think that they're entitled to criticise any part of your anatomy. Oh, people of a certain generation, definitely, yeah. Um, and, you know, and Peggy Van Praag, who is the founding director of the Australian Ballet, an extraordinary visionary woman, she would do the same. Like, you know, she would have a, you know, she would, you know, it was like a scan. She would scan you up and down and then look at all the things that, you know, you could do better or look better at doing, you know. And um, it was it was a certain, I mean, it was like the Hollywood system. You yeah. Know? You were just, you were there to be turned into something that was, a perfection, an idea of perfection. Well, you're there for an audience, right? Mm, exactly. And, to and be... so you can justify any kind of criticism by saying, no, no, I'm just saying, yeah. you know, yeah. if people don't like it, they won't come. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that has changed a lot because now individuality is what I think we look for. When I mean, when I was the director and, you know, even my short time here, the thing that I get excited about is when people do... I mean, you know, you want everyone to have an ensemble of, of, you know, being able to dance together and, you know, in lines and all those sorts of things. But the beauty is when individuals step out and they're just so unique and it's their performance. They're not trying to be Margot Fontaine or Rudolf Nureyev. They're authentically themselves. And, and I guess that's what I learned through my career. And, you know, when it started off, we all were trying to look like a certain, you know, vision of what a ballet dancer was. Now I think, you know, it's much more exciting to see how different people step in and make ballet something that's, you know, that's new and, and not generic in a way. I'm talking to David McAllister, who has been the acting artistic director of the Royal New Zealand Ballet in this 70th year. Um, he is making way for the new artistic director, Tai King-Wall, who is a New Zealander, who's been a dance director for the Australian Ballet. I mean, the... <laughs> The mutual pollination that's gone on between Australia and New Zealand is extraordinary, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I was lucky enough to do that through my career. I mean, the first year in the company, Paul Gnatt, who was the founder of mm. the Royal New Zealand Ballet, came over and staged um, Le Conservatoire, a, ball a Bourneville ballet for us. And he chose me to do one of the solos. It's like this weird, you know, continual sort of connections that our two countries have had in, in an artistic realm. And, you know, I danced with Fiona Tonkin a lot, who was a great um, New Zealand ballerina. Um, and, you know, having Ty, in fact, I had an executive director, Richard Evans, who's a New Zealander, and we used to joke that there would have to be the Richard Evans Memorial Dancer <laughs> from New Zealand every year. You know, right. we, we would have to employ, I mean, we wouldn't have to, but, you know, we would, because there's so much talent that comes from New Zealand and, and vice versa. You know, I think there's a lot of talented dancers um, and directors from Australia who have come over and had a great career here. Given the mixing well. and mingling, is it possible to say that the Royal New Zealand Ballet has a character of its own? Absolutely. What is it? It's um, it's a really interesting um, community, a, a very family-type company, I think. And I feel like the 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 way the company tours to you know doing it does tour a lot right for a national company it is extraordinary the mm. amount of road you know um, the country that it covers with not just you know sending out digital broadcast it actually 
is physically in, you know, cities all over New Zealand. And I think that's one of the great strengths of the Royal New Zealand Ballet. And I think it is what's most Mind you, it has to. I mean, in Australia, you've got, you know, you're yeah, just the, about to go back to your hometown of Perth yeah. to be able to sit director of the West Australian Ballet, right? Mm. You've got, you know... A it's, lot of ballet companies around the place. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we've just got the one. And the big one. But, you know, so many... I mean, I was just in Finland recently. I did a Swan Lake for the Finnish National Ballet. And they have a population around the same size as New Zealand. And the Finnish National Ballet are in Helsinki and never tour. Uh-huh. You know, and it's a big country that, you know, spans quite a lot of space. But, you know, they just don't tour. It's mm. it's just that's... If people want to see ballet in Finland, they come to Helsinki. I and mean, do they? They Well, I'm assuming they do. I mean, they actually have good houses. But I think, you know, only just recently they did a, a, a bit of a tour because the, the theatre was shut in Helsinki. And so they went on tour in this sort of big arena show. But, I mean, that's why I think, you know, the Royal New Zealand Ballet is such an extraordinary company because it shares the art of ballet with the whole of New Zealand, mm. not just Christchurch, Auckland and, um, and Wellington. As a matter of interest, what kind of Swan Lake did Finland put on? Well, was it, was it a new production? It was a, it was a new production of a of a classical version. It wasn't sort of trying to turn it into something else. Um, that was my brief. Right. But I did try and weave in a little bit of a a local sort of feel. In fact, swans are the national bird, or national animal of um, of Finland. So, oh, really? So it's sort swan of swan lake probably gets thrashed to death. <laughs> then does it? <laughs> well, it was the first. Not another swan lake. I mean, it was interesting. Yeah. It was to celebrate their centenary. It was the. Um, I think the 10th production of Swan Lake that the company had done over its 100 years. The centenary of the company. Yeah. I suppose because they would have had the Russian influence. Very much so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I mean, I didn't know that Finland wasn't a a country of its own until um, 1917. So, you know, it was quite a a new country. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, but I sort of feel that's the other thing about the Royal New Zealand Ballet. It's amazing. So many companies have not survived 70 years and, you know, and even like the Australian Ballet is 10 years younger than um, Royal New Zealand Ballet. Mm. I mean, it is an incredible testimony that this is a a long-standing and mature company um, with, you know, that has built a love for ballet in in New Zealand that's extraordinary. You're credited with diversifying the um, the Australian Ballet. What, did you set out to do that? If so, how, what? I just felt that, you know, to be relevant in the 21st century, that we actually had to reflect the nation of Australia. So not having, you know, the diversity within the company of, you know, different um, ethnicities. ethnicities and, you know, and, and especially our First Nations people. I mean, we didn't have an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander dancer in the company since, since until um, 2020, uh, 2012. And I felt that that was a huge omission. I mean, there had been people that had been trained through the company, but then never joined um, for various reasons. And so, and you know, and from that, we then had another dancer who joined the company. And you know, you, and I had lots of great conversations with you know um, fellow dancers at Bangara, and they would say, you know, of course I wanted to be a ballet dancer, but there was just no one there in the company that looked like me. And it's the same with Asian dancers and, you know, um, the new migration of um, South Asian uh, people into Australia and, you know, and from the South Sudan um, African nation. We have to be able to, you know, look like Australia on stage. And I feel very much the same here in New Zealand. You know, we, we have to reflect the country that we are as a ballet company. Mm. I know one of the things you say you regret is never being able to, or never getting around to, never having time to, never being able to commission 
the great Australian ballet, yeah. the great Australian ballet. Mm. Is that a, is that feasible? <clears throat> you may yet do that. I hope to. What at would some it time. What would it be like? Well, that's the big question, and um, you know, because obviously there's some you know incredible breadth of you know First Nations stories to tell, but they're not necessarily a European colonial art form's purview to tell those stories. You no. know? And there's and that's, you know, been done previously with very, you know, shocking results. So to me, the story I feel that I was trying to find anyway was that story of immigration. You know, our, Australia was built on, a, you know, from... 17, you know, 88 through to now, waves of migration from all around the world. And, you know, to try and find that story that celebrates our First Nations culture, the oldest living, you know, continuous culture in the world, and the, the waves of migration that have come through. I just couldn't find that one story that wove all of that together. But, you know, mm. I'm, not, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, you have labelled it the European colonial art form of ballet. Mm. And there are other, of course, there's opera. Mm. You could say classical music in yep. many of its forms. Mm. Um, you're obviously recommending that we don't ditch it because it's European and colonial. Mm. We amend it to suit. But do you honour its history in doing that? I think you honour the technique. And to I mean, Bill Forsyth had a fantastic, uh, the famous American choreographer, had a fantastic um, way of explaining this. Whereas he said, you know, ballet is not a set of repertoire, it's a technique. And the technique is what inspires people to create. And as we go forward, you know, from, from the very beginnings of ballet through to today, people have been inspired by that technique to create works. And sometimes there's, an, there's a group of people that really want to hold on to a certain set of repertoire. Mm. And that is beautiful. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's lovely to do and it's, you know, very nice. But we are not doing our job if we don't continue to create and to build future repertoire that becomes classical works in 200 years' time. So um, my thought is that, you know, we have to continue to innovate. And, you know, over history, ballet has taken all sorts of influences from all sorts of, you know, contemporary dance, street dance, you know, um, even, you know, you look at the works of Jerome Robbins, it was very inspired by Hollywood and, and Broadway. And, you know, so we are an art form that is a bit of a bowerbird. You know, we do pick from all sorts of different places and it and it sort of, you mesh it in with the ballet technique and it turns into something else. You said that you, if there is a regret that you have, it's that you maybe played it safe because of the commercial constraints. Mm. And I think everybody who, who <laughs> has anything to do with the arts has that same yeah. Yeah. issue. But if there were no commercial constraints, mm. what would you do? I would, I mean, look, you know, I would probably do a similar sort of balance of repertoire. I mean, you know, you'd still do the 19th century classics, but you would actually have a much stronger focus on commissioning works and allowing artists to to be that sort of experimental. Um, so, you know, you're not then saying, okay, I want you to do a work that, you know, is experimental, but it's still got to, you know, play to a paid capacity of 75%, <laughs> so, mm. which, which does then... I mean, know, it's self-censoring. <clears throat> yeah, and it? I think, you know, and also works of scale. I mean, it would be great to do big works that don't necessarily hit on their first outing, but then over time get moulded and, and developed and, you know, 
um, polished to a point where you know it it is sort of a different appeal to the audience. I think you know you look at some of the great works of the twentieth century, like you know Sir um, Kenneth Macmillan's Manon, which you know in its first outing was not successful, and now it's one of the great you know, set pieces of the 20th century because mm. he was allowed to continue to work on it. And, you know, he he cut about 25 minutes out of the ballet from when it first came to when it... So I think, you know, allowing creative people to be creative and then to also revisit and, and refine and develop works is what makes works that survive. Mm. Um, and then, you know, there is that opportunity of giving people opportunities to make works that will not survive. And that's not the, the that's not the, the, they want to get something out and that work will lead to another work which might become the classic. In science, they call that blue sky research. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly the sort of thing that I would love to have had the opportunity to do more. But, you know, and I think there are companies in the world that do that. I mean, the Paris Opera, Fund are funded a hundred percent by the Paris government, and so the only thing that they have to do, they can use all of their box office to develop new works. That's why the Paris Opera work with some of the most outrageously contemporary and and avant garde people, and some of the works are disposable, and that's okay because they're not, you know, trying to fit to that that um, very tight um, resource footprint that you know some other companies you know have to deal with and you know and that's very much a thing here and it's very much a thing in Australia you know in fact I mean the Royal New Zealand Ballet I think has about 50% subsidy from the government which is it's what it needs to being you know a a, a relatively large company in a relatively small you know um, community Um, but you know in Australia I think our subsidy from government is less than 10% now which is you know puts a huge commercial Constraint on what state or federal, both. All right, mm, it combined is ten percent, right. which is hugely low. <laughs> Um, so you are now an artistic director for hire, essentially. I am. I'm a gun for hire. And how is that for you? I mean, you go presumably you know everybody in the industry by now, but I mean, off you go, as I said, to Perth now, mm. the West Australian Ballet. Look, I find it really, really fascinating and, and enjoyable. And, and the reason that I'm, you know, not looking to, you know, do a long term stint in another company is because I've had my time and I had a great time and I enjoyed every minute of it. But you know. I think it's the time for the next generation to be nurtured and developed. And I see my role now is that sort of of an elder, really. And, you know, um, looking after companies in that transition phase and then handing it on to the next generation um, of directors to then, you know, build the future of ballet. So I'm I'm loving this opportunity of sort of being a, you know, a ballet doctor in a way, not a doctor. I mean, you know, a, a specialist, <laughs> a specialist that people can come to right. and, and, you know, I can step in and look after something, but then also, you know, hand it on to the next generation. And I love the idea of mentoring the next generation and, and being able to pass on whatever you know, knowledge I've experienced, but also to, you know, provoke them to continue that evolution of ballet. Did you have an existential crisis when you stopped dancing? Well, no, actually, I was so lucky. I mean, people who know me knew that it was going to be a terrible end because <laughs> I was just such a, a bunhead. I was going to have to have someone with a hook take me off stage. Right. But um, when I applied for the job in Australia, I was still very much in the dancer's mode. And um, I was 37, but still, you know, I thought I still had another couple of years left in me. But giving, having 
given that opportunity, I knew that I was going to stop dancing if I got the role. That was going to be it. So I had this beautiful transition. From, so you didn't have to, you didn't stop dancing. Oh, what am I going to do now? No, I was so, you know, fully encompassed by my new responsibility. And did you have to give up dancing, though? Like, there is a certain age you reach where... Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I was getting there. I was getting to that point. I, as I said, I think I probably... You'd had, had injuries? Oh, yeah. I was like a medical, you know, walking medical miracle. But um, What had happened to Oh, you? I had um, bone spurs in my ankles removed. I had an um, anterior cruciate ligament oh. reconstructed. I had a prolapsed disc in my back that, you know, almost caused me not to be able to dance. So I, I was... I really did... And part of the reason why I was so passionate about building the wellness and health care of the Australian Ballet and, and what the company are doing here is because I know that good good advice and good health um, practice can elongate your career. Could those injuries have been avoided had practice been better? Uh, if I'd known then well, what know I now. know now. Oh, yeah. But <coughs> I mean in truth. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Could it? Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, part of it was technical. I mean, I just didn't understand my body in the way that dancers do now. And that's that's been an evolution of 20 years of, of training dancers in a different way and also treating them in a different way and giving them the information through, you know, dance and, and sports medicine to, to know and understand. I'm, we just didn't get it back in, you know, in the 80s and 90s. We didn't understand what you needed to do to support a career in dance. And young dancers joining companies now do. Mm. Are you married now? No, but I have a long-term partner. I know you do. I'm yeah. just looking at the rings and trying no, to no, remember no. Which, <laughs> which, hand? which hand the wedding ring goes on. So no. is Wesley going to Perth with you? No, he's um, he's a very um, busy man. Um, in, he's he's um, a writer. He's a writer. He's a director. He's also the Indigenous Chair of Creative Industries at Queensland University of Technology. And he's also just become a, a, a board member of Creative Australia. So, yeah, he's he's having a very busy and... An important career. You're a power arts couple, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I think he's much more powerful than I am. But um, but yeah, no, we have a we have a great relationship where we 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 are like a Venn diagram. We just cross over each other <laughs> every couple of weeks. <laughs>